Where are you out of really quick? Are you Oshkosh or Green Bay? Uh, Stevens Point, actually. Stevens Point. <laughs> yep, almost almost smack dab in the middle of Wisconsin. Um, uh, we're we're just a few miles away from uh, Pittsville, which uh, prides itself as being the exact geographic center of Wisconsin. <laughs> so. Okay. All right. Well, that's cool. I've never I've never been to Pittsville. I've been through Stevens Point a number of times. Um, heading northward from there, but uh, so you're so you're you're good friends then with like all of those guys like John Pata and, and everybody or oh yeah I, I met a lot I met most of them at the Yashgash Horror Film Festival about seven years ago when I first covered the first fest well it was the second festival they held but it was the first one I was at yeah and that's where I met Derek Carey yeah it was really cool like I went to the gags premiere yeah. up in Green Bay and uh that was pretty crazy so I don't think I've seen a a theater that packed uh for a film an indie film <laughs> premiere <laughs> yeah no they it sounded like they had a good number of people there which is nice and you know i you have to figure that they were going to get that kind of support you know it was shot in that town and it promoted that town so and yeah. they've been talking about it for so long i i'm not surprised at all so it was it was good to hear that it was a successful turnout i was working that night so that's why i wasn't there oh sure because yeah. I work on gags a little bit too. Yeah, I think a, a good chunk of people seem to work on gags, and I guess we'll just get right into it. Uh, one of the things I find interesting is how, especially here in the Midwest, uh, you find, especially here with some of your films, I was doing uh, some digging on some of the cast and how you you've all kind of worked, either touched slightly or been more involved on each other's projects in some way. Uh, would you say the Midwest has a, a rather large uh, indie film making community? Yeah, I, I think especially given that Chicago is a rather large city and mm -hmm. and does have a fair amount of uh, of high end entertainment coming out of it. Um, there's definitely a good number of people who hold positions, uh, you know, that are local, locally sure. based. Um, so. I think that that that's a big part of it, but uh, and there's also obviously a large commercial community. Um, I know that a lot of the people that I work with on every project are also, you know, freelancers or um, people that work on shows. You know, I've got friends that work on things like, you know, the Chicago Fire and PD and Empire and um, the Carbonaro effect shoots in Chicago. I was just on that last week and. My one buddy is the gaffer for that show. So, um, you know, there's there's definitely a nice size community of professional work. And then in terms of independent, and that's not saying that independent's not professional, just, you know, in terms of budget, there's a significant difference. Um, and I think that uh, at, the, at the very least, there is a large horror community in the Midwest, which is awesome and... Um, we do all know each other, um, and if we don't, it's literally one degree of separation. Um, and i I think it's you know I think it's a good thing mm -hmm. if you have a good reputation and if you treat people with respect, um, because everybody knows each other, and so you just you know I'm thankful to be what I believe is part of a really great community of filmmakers, but um, you know at the same time sometimes you have to tread lightly. 
because if you piss one person off, it can spread like wildfire. You know, I've I've seen that as well. Following uh, some groups in that, I've I've seen how that can happen. So, uh, what what made you want to get into uh, filmmaking? Uh, you know, what were your inspirations, or how did you get started in the in making films? When I was uh, a kid, I just I don't know. I always uh, enjoyed stories and reading. You know. Um, particularly horror, uh, I'd say that goes as far back as, you know, just being little and uh, wanting, for some reason, I was always intrigued by this, the black and white monster movies and um, the thing from another world in particular was like one of my favorites. My mom had it on a, a copied VHS tape and I used to watch it all the time and um, like Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And then uh, when I was, you know, five six seven years old is when i started getting introduced like more more uh grand scheme to to colored horror films i, sure. I remember um watching nightmare on elm street with my dad at one point um you know i think it was just on television so it's like you know some of the stuff was edited out but but visuals like tina's bloody body bag being dragged down the the school hallway was just so vivid to me um and uh i would go to my one aunt's house and she showed us you know she, we used to watch weird science every time we'd go over there and you know at the time i was like six my, my brother was like four you know and we'd stay over and watch that and and I'd, I'd say i probably watched that over there a dozen times as a kid and and she showed us child's play a lot younger than we should have been you know seeing that <laughs> Um, my other aunt showed me Psycho and Psycho 2 and House. Um, so, you know, it was like I was slowly being introduced but to these things. And, and all the while I was, you know, listening to ghost stories and stuff like that. My dad would always tell some cool ghost stories and uh, to my friends and I as a kid. And, um, and I started reading the books, you know, when you go to the book fair and, and whatnot at school. I, I love the scary stories of telling the dark books. Those are some oh, of my yes. <laughs> um and and then you know started progressing into eventually king and Kuntz and uh john saul i read some of his stuff and um and just always you know and always watching horror films and then i i got a job at a video store uh and ended up working at two different video stores in high school and i just i kind of always said i wanted to make movies and the first script i ever wrote was uh a kung fu parody um movie that i was going to shoot i was probably 12 that i was going to shoot with some of my neighborhood friends um in my backyard and i just i think back to that and and you know you had to have kind of seen a budding filmmaker at that moment because i was doing things like my mom had a deck off the back of the house and the we had a hill in our backyard that went down to a pond and so i had all these visuals of you know guys fighting in the the shallow part of the pond and um you know using the weeping willow trees to our advantage and um the deck was like elevated so i wanted to kind of be under the deck like below it shooting up at them to make it look like they were fighting on a bridge high above a ravine and like you know there would be the the kind of moral combat uppercut into the pit type of scenario at one point yeah so you know it's like i i, I think back to that and i've actually found that script and going back through my old papers recently and 
I mean, obviously the, the writing is atrocious, you know, it's like <laughs> 12 year olds, you know, ripping, but, um, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's something that's kind of always been with me and, uh, it's certainly a passion and, um, I think I'm pretty good at it and, and it seems to just come naturally to me in a lot of ways. You know, I, I definitely have a fair amount of struggles and, um, if it wasn't for the amazing people that I work with, uh, you know, which is what it always boils down to is your team. Um, you can't make a movie by yourself, no matter how hard you try. And, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, it just, it's, it's brought me now to this point where I've been doing it professionally for almost 14 years. So it's crazy. Yeah. It's always interesting how it, uh, how it life plays you a, a, a hand like that. And, you get an advantage, you know, get a chance to do something that you love uh, like that for so long too, 14 years. That's really impressive. Um, you know, and you mentioned, you mentioned scary stories that tell in the dark. Everybody I know who's into horror, who grew up, uh, you know, in, in the 80s, early 90s, I think we've all read that book. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Those, those three books easily influenced an entire generation. And it's mostly because of the, artwork i mean mm -hmm. um you know the the stories were great some of those i I'll, I'll never forget the visuals i got from that vendigo short um in the first book um you know where the guy you know the guy's like like looking for somebody in the in the forest during the winter oh yeah 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 it's like the footprints mm -hmm. they just disappear into the night you know and i i actually did a rendition of that many many years ago it was the, the first short film i ever shot after my first feature it's my party and i'll die if i want to so this was like the winter of 2006 i shot this with my friend johnny who has subsequently written a number of my scripts with me including skeletons in the closet and uh and we were out in my dad's backyard in the woods in the bitter ass cold in December <laughs> and January of 2006, 2007, um, shooting this movie and just again, did some really awesome stuff with it. And, uh, no one's ever seen that short film cause it, I never finished editing it and it's never come out. And, and by the time I had moved on to other shorts and, um, you know, it's just the quality of it wasn't as good. And I, I just never touched on it and mm -hmm. don't really edit anymore. So it's kind of unfortunate because it was a cool little short film that I would love for people to see one day. Um, it's just hard to revisit something that's over a decade old at this point, you know? Um, sure. But, but yeah, I mean, who, who doesn't know me tied Dottie Walker, you know, I, I, uh, still remember most of the uh, uh poem of uh for never laughed when a hearst goes by right uh i memorized that as a kid <laughs> and I, it still sticks with me occasionally I, especially around halloween i start thinking about it occasionally so uh we live across from a graveyard so it Ooh. you know it sparks that uh that memory every so often so um well, I always remember like the picture uh, from the big toe and it's like the big toe sticking out of the ground. And there's that like weird little like impish dude with like the, the hoe, <laughs> hoe tool. And I'm like, what is like, like, it's just weird, you know, <laughs> weird. Well, that illustrator must've been like, was that Alan Schwartz or was he the writer? The illustrator must've been on drugs. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> I think, I think I was drawn to it because it was probably one of the more, uh, the weirder, and a little bit more macabre things we had in our elementary school library. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> you know, I read through all the dinosaur books, so I had to look at something else. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, they didn't. They didn't have it or misery in my fucking. <laughs> Sorry, can I swear on this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In my elementary school library, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of lack of Stephen King in mine as well. Yeah. I don't understand why. Uh <laughs> yeah. Right. No, I I was first introduced to Stephen King. My my dad read a handful of King books, and he had ne needful things when it first came out. That was mm. probably ninety two or ninety three uh, in paperback. And so I remember when he finished reading it, I was just like, "Can I read this?" For some reason, the cover really intrigued me, and and I don't know why, because I personally think Needful Things is a terrible book. I just it's for for a twelve year old, you have to understand why. I mean, it's boring. You know, it's all about fulfilling desires, and and you know, it's it's very sexually oriented and stuff, from what I remember. And you know, I haven't read it in almost thirty years, granted, but it's just I was. I was reading it and I remember at one point I was sitting at the dinner table and, you know, again, I'm 12, 13 years old and I'm sitting there with my, my sister who's five years younger than me and my brother who's two years younger than me and my mother. And, uh, and I'm like, mom, and my dad wasn't there. He wasn't there for dinner. He was probably working late. And I'm like, mom, what's a W H O R E. And she's <laughs> is like, don't ever say that again. And I was like, I just spelled it. And, you know, <laughs> She's like, where'd you hear that? And of course, it was in Needful Things. And <laughs> I'm sure my father probably got a talking to um, after that. But it hooked me. It's like mm -hmm. I, I proceeded to read every Stephen King book that was available at the time. And I think I read through every one of his books between the ages of 12 and 15. And then I, I moved over to Dean Koontz because my aunt, who had showed me House, uh, and Psycho was like, well, if you like King, you have to read Koontz. And she introduced me to Whispers and Watchers. And I was, um, to this day, I think Watchers is still my favorite book ever written. Yeah, I, I used to read a lot more when I was younger. And I read a, I read a few uh, King books. I had read Needful Things. I had read uh, The Dark Half. I really enjoyed Love Dark Half. The Dark Half. I thought that was a really interesting concept. Um, and and at that time, I didn't know the whole background of of part of the reason why he, you know, his motivation, the whole Richard Bachman. So I didn't know any of that. I just thought it was a really cool book. And then I learned later on, you know, what it was about and, and why he wrote it as well. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm like, <laughs> wait, he was it responsible for the running man? Really? Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy to think that that yeah that he that he had a, a whole nother series of stuff that that no one even knew was him initially and i mean when i started reading stephen king people knew that richard bachman was also king but yeah it's it's really crazy to think that you know here's a guy who wrote carrie and cujo and you know at the time salem's lot and the and and i think even the dead zone was coming out about the same i think the mm -hmm. dead zone and and running man were both 1983 but you never would have known they were written by the same person. Um, but then even as you progress forward, you've got like Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption. And it's like, that is about the furthest contrast from his other stuff. Although Stand By Me is very, it's a more true to life kind of it type of film, you know, mm -hmm. or, or story. Um, but yeah, regardless, it's, 
it's it's all really great stuff. And I I'm like you. I don't read anymore either. I hardly even read scripts at this point, which you know is mainly because I just don't I don't option scripts typically. I I build stuff off of my own concepts that I work with other writers on. So when people send me a script, which I tend to get about an email a week from a writer saying, "Are you interested in checking my stuff out?" I just have to say I'm I'm not interested without you know accompanying financing because I just you know, it's like, why am I going to go raise money for somebody else's movie when I can raise it for my own? You know, um, I've got a lot of ideas that since they're mine, I absolutely love. And, you know, it's not that's not sounding selfish. That's more just, oh. because you know, everybody likes what they like. And so my ideas are, are ideas that I really enjoy as a fan, not just as a filmmaker. And so I really want to see them come to fruition. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Creature subgenre i really love haunted houses I'm, I'm a real big fan of sub supernatural horror i'm not as big of a fan of um uh like like home invasion or i hate torture porn uh, <laughs> yeah. you know i so the early 2000s was a really dark period in horror film for me because i was not a big fan of the saw movies they were intriguing but um i'm i'm more of a fan of movies like leviathan and the thing and and uh you know the the haunting of hill house i just you know my girlfriend and i finished watching that series and that is easily the best horror content that i have seen in a couple of years i mean that blows the new halloween out of the water in my opinion yeah and i i think that's reflected in uh, some of your projects is uh you've actually got a number of them going on in in uh different aspects the rake came out this past year uh saw it at the uh new horror film festival in oshkosh and the rake has those supernatural elements it's uh that's why I, can, I smile when you mention that because i could feel that in the film now was the rake based kind of off of the i believe it was the creepy pasta uh angle or where did the idea for the rake come from i love your segue by the way that was an awesome transition <laughs> thank you <laughs> very very smooth you got me to shut up i love it oh. um so the rake uh we were we were trying to develop a feature length version of the muck which is a 2013 short film that um my team created that we submitted to the abc's of death 2 contest and when it didn't win um we submitted to a bunch of festivals and it got into south by southwest and scream fest and stanley film festival uh and and a number of other very prestigious film festivals chicago international film fest and so we thought, well, you know, this is clearly gathering some steam. Let's try and turn it into a feature. So again, my friend Johnny and I uh, wrote a script together and we're really excited about it. It was basically the blob in a neighborhood in the 1980s. I mean, it's like, how, how do you go wrong with an idea like that? Um, <laughs> and and uh, we, we weren't really able to find, with, with the, the handful of, of connections that we had, we weren't really able to find the, the interest or the money to to turn it into a feature. So I was at my friend Jason Kane's house, and Jason is my special effects supervisor for all my stuff. Um, and he and I were talking. He's a big horror fan, too. And so we were just kind of talking about it. I was really disappointed that the, the muck was kind of going nowhere, and we were kind of putting it on a shelf. And uh, he's like, well, you know, I've told you about this before. Why don't we tap into a creepypasta and just do something lower budget? You know, we can do one. You know, because he knows that that I'm a big fan of trying to do something with one location and a small cast. 
so that way it, it stays cheap. Um, and so he's like, we could do something with the rake. And he had shared with me the initial story at one point before that. And he knows I'm a big creature fan. So um, I, I read the story again and he and I kind of bullshitted about it for a, a couple minutes that night. And then I started thinking about it and I started just generating some, some enthusiasm and, and some, uh, some ideas for it. And I, I met with a, my, my co-writer on that project, Jeremy Silva. And this was November of 2014. And uh, he, he had written uh, some stuff that I thought was really good. He had a very mature uh, writing perspective and, um, and was just a very well-spoken person, uh, very intelligent. And so he and I started developing this concept for a psychological thriller that was sandwiched in a monster movie mm -hmm. um, where the rake is, is a pestilence. It's, it's like something that attaches itself to a, a, a person and just sucks all the positivity and happiness out of them. And uh, so in a way, it's almost like a, like, like Candyman or Freddy Krueger, but it's not a person with a personality. It's, it's a monster. So it'd be like if a werewolf was, was like Candyman, which mm -hmm. I thought was, was kind of a cool and unique idea at the time. Um, and the funny thing is, is that as with majority of my projects and my ideas, it's like the collective subconscious is so, so hard at work. That it's like as soon as you come up with an idea, there's a, a dozen other people out there that also have an idea <laughs> thing. And the unfortunate thing is they all have more money and connections than I do. Mm -hmm. uh, how's that for being cynical? Uh, <laughs> so it, it's really funny because literally like we 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 started writing the script in like November 3rd of 2014 is the day that Jeremy and I met. Um I had been developing the idea with some of my co-producers and, and with Jason as well. Jason was obviously the special effects supervisor and he and I, you know, designed the, the look of the creature together and everything. And all this is going on at the tail end of 2014. We started shooting in early 2015, finished principal photography in April of 15. And the movie didn't come out until June of, of 2018, um, which was a, a real big disappointment because, you know, if we would have released it in 2016 uh, or even, you know, early 2017, we would have beaten uh, the release of a, of a large number of other films that are very similar, if not exactly the same as The Rake. It's almost like we were we were uh, like at the forefront of this resurgence of monster movies right. that are everywhere now. Um, you know, it's it's like it kind of took over for the haunted house movies um, that were really headed up by the insidious and conjuring films. And not that they're, they're not still making haunted house films. Cause clearly there's still a lot of them being released like haunting of Hill house. But, but yeah, it's, it's disappointing because the, the rake is proud of it as I am. I mean, it's, it's the biggest scale production that I have ever been at the helm of and uh and, and i'm just i'm so damn proud of what my team was able to to put together you know my four co-producers jim peterson robert patrick stern sarah sharp and uh and angela verdino uh she was angela cox at the time um you know the the five of us sat down and and just did a hell of a job of not knowing what we were doing but still gathering an amazing crew and a great cast 
and and making what I felt was a, a very solid looking production. Um, and enough so to where it attracted a, an LA producing team to partner with us. And, you know, subsequently, um, you know, obviously as, as Ben talks about um, in, in your interview with him, I'm sure to a, to a large degree um, it's again, it's at a point where I look at the movie and I look at how, how much it's gotten out there and, and I appreciate the, the exposure that it's received and, and the wide release that it got. But, um, you know, I wish that I was able to, to instill a little more of that, that, that parental love to the movie that I did not have the opportunity to have because, you know, we were not involved in the post-production process at all. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just one of those situations that, that is kind of how Hollywood is. Um, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that and, and in talking to some other indie filmmakers in that, I don't think people realize sometimes how products can evolve from what there originally was the original cut and what the filmmakers had created to the final product that you get out, um, you know, that gets distributed. If they do get picked up by a distributor, what, what's actually shown to the public versus what it maybe first had when it was in its first festival runs or first intended to be, uh, things change. And I think people don't realize that sometimes that they can change drastically. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's why I found the interesting story, uh, talking to Ben and, then uh, you know, uh, seeing your conversations as well and, and that, and just seeing, uh, how, uh, something like this could evolve. Cause yeah, the production value is really high for uh, really good production value for this. And there's a, there are a lot of, uh, great things in the final product that got released to the public that I enjoyed, uh, that surprised me, particularly the scene in the basement. Um, with uh ashley uh i believe it's uh the character's ashley uh with um the whole angle where she's in the basement and, and she has that hallucination where you have that kind of extreme special effect uh was there a point where you thought maybe you shouldn't do that or or do you just go ahead and, and shoot it and say ah you know people will take it however they can i that's funny um i i don't think i ever really I mean, I, I, I want to say we probably had a conversation or two about um, uh, about kind of the the um, the subject matter of that sequence. Sure. But first of all, at the core, a horror film is meant to um, shock an audience. It's meant to scare an audience. It's meant to bring about reactions and emotions that you are not supposed to feel uh, on a daily basis because you're supposed to be comfortable. You're supposed to be content. You're supposed to be happy. And, um, horror movies kind of, you know, tug it at the, the, the more darker strings that, that we are all, um, accustomed to feeling at times in our lives. And, um, and so I, I am a, a very big proponent of, of shocking an audience, not to the extreme. I, that's why I said, I don't like torture porn. Mm. I am not an extreme gore fan. I, I think that gore is, is appropriate in situations such as in the rake, obviously our practical effects work. And that is, is very gory, but, um, but I'm, I'm not a fan of, of gore for the sake of being disgusting. And, uh, in a situation like that sequence, 
it's it's a storytelling moment. This woman is dealing with a lot of inner demons, not just the uh, quote unquote um, relationship that she has with this creature, the rake, this entity, but it's it's you know it's also affected her life uh, on a personal level. And so you have to kind of be able to see why she is as messed up as she is and, and as emotional as she is and, you know, kind of what she's experiencing so that you understand why she's as batshit crazy as she is throughout the movie. Um, and, and I'm, I, I think that majority of our society today are filled with pussies. I'm just going <laughs> to, I am absolutely abhorred to the, to the it, it disgusts me how touchy people are nowadays. I mean, people people complain and are entitled and feel like they 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 deserve everything and anything for doing nothing and and are are very um, you know it's it's like I said it's very touchy and mm -hmm. it's like I appreciate that people are able to express themselves nowadays and I think as long as you're not shitting on somebody else's face unless they want you to do that. Of course, I don't understand why, you know, why people can't do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting someone else, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated is, is a, is a mantra that is very easy. And for some reason, majority of our population doesn't seem to understand that concept. Um, but you know, as a result, you've got people who, who just complain about stuff like that. And it's like a scene like that's not meant to be offensive it's meant to showcase again the fact that inside this woman's head, inside Ashley's head, she's dealing with severe PTSD and trauma, and and that's, you know, to to her family members' uh, perspectives, that's that's just uh, because she's emotionally distraught and has gone through some severe trauma as a child, but what you come to realize as an audience member is that it's because she's truly infected by this supernatural entity, the rake, and that it's, it's controlled her life her since she was a child. Um, and you have to be able to show people that, you know, you can't, you can't hint at it, you know? <laughs> well, you, you have to see because of the way she is, because she is such in an extreme condition, which, uh, I, I, I'm not sure, uh, did you kind of intend it to be? Because I felt with some of my uh, personal experiences as well with uh, family members and such, I felt almost this ha had a, not only is it a monster feature, but felt almost like there was a bit of an allegory in here about how uh, family members handle someone in the family with a mental illness. Yeah. Uh, that's what I got kind of out of this film as well was uh, how people react how they handle someone with a long term, not just your short mental illness, but something that this person's been suffering through for whole, they're pretty much their whole life since they were young. And was that kind of what you were going for as well with it? Was uh, maybe, you know, and uh, showing, you know, kind of expressing how people can treat a family member who actually does have a mental illness? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted it to be a mature story i wanted it to involve mature subject matter because my first film it's my party and i'll die if i want to is um it's it's an 80s style horror film it's basically night of the demons meets evil dead meets creep show that's the comparisons <laughs> that it gets the most 
Um, I made it right after Savini, after I graduated from Tom Savini Special Effects School. And that movie's very 80s, kind of campy, co-eds getting killed, you know, one by one by a, the, the evil entities in a house. And I wrote it when I was 25 years old, you know, so it's, it's, it's not as mature of a story. And then my second film that I directed um, was called is called High on the Hog, starring Sid Haig. It's a grindhouse movie. And that movie really evolved to be a very mature story um, about family and love and, and, and integrity and, and loyalty. But, you know, that's, that's all the core of it. What it is is a, you know, it's a grindhouse movie, so it's still sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> Great. And, um, and so my goal at this point was to, well, and again, this is on the, this is after the release of The Muck. And so, you know, The Muck is a monster movie where a woman comes home from working out and gets eaten by a monster in her bathtub while she's taking a bath. So I, my goal was to jump to the opposite side of the spectrum as a, a storyteller and show people that I have the capabilities of, 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 of being outside the box of my comfort zone and that I'm not a one trick pony. Um, and so it was very important to me that the characters were well-developed. Um, it was very important to me that they were very real and that people really felt for them. Um, you know, my so two of my favorite horror movies, two of my favorite movies of all time are Alien and The Shining. Um, mm, and <laughs> so both of those films are slow burns. They're atmospheric. Uh, they build tension very well. Um, and they're character studies. And, um, and that's what the rake was at the core. That's what my vision of the rake was. That's what Jeremy's vision was when he wrote it with me. And I believe that we had a really great story there. And my perspective is one perspective, but mm -hmm. initially what we had was something that, that was character driven and, and atmosphere driven. And the monster was almost just kind of like the cherry on top. And, uh, um, so, you know, the, the final edit of the movie has 15 minutes removed from it. Easily sure. 15 minutes of character development and additional sequences. There's a lot of, of the special effects work that was not included in, in the final cut mm -hmm. that, you know, again, I'm, I'm proud of the movie and I'm happy with how far it's gotten out there. Um, you know, I mean, it's in every Walmart across the country. So how do I complain about that? <laughs> um, I can go on my television right now on Comcast and rent it. And that, that to me is a true, success because being able to sit and watch your movie on television is pretty cool um but but at the same time it's like you know the movie just it it didn't receive the um it didn't receive the the mother the the the, the maternal or paternal affection that that i felt like it deserved once once we left set um and uh you know it is what it is again yeah. but but as a result, I know you said your initial review of the movie was that you didn't like it. And and, and I understand that. And that's fine. Well, there, and, there were, there were parts I do like, I, for instance, I like how you handled the creature in here and I like the Ashley character as well. Um, but especially with the creature, I like the kind of out of focus uh, in the distance, sometimes shots you had of it. And then 
when we do finally get to see is an impressive creature. How long did it take to do the makeup for that? The, the, the design for that. Oh, let's see. Um, I, I called Savini's school and I told them we were making a movie and, uh, they had done this once before where, you know, they, they basically tell their students, Hey, we've got an alumni who's making a film. If you guys want to work on a real movie, you know, uh, <laughs> do it. So, um, right after they graduated, two guys, Tom Cassidy and Reed Cesar, uh, were driving out to California from Pittsburgh right after they graduated. And so they basically made a three week pit stop in Illinois and they lived in our spare bedroom in my house and worked in my basement and spent three weeks building the creature suit. Um, and these kids were fucking brilliant. These guys <laughs> just watching them. I would come home from bartending every night and I would sit downstairs in the basement with them and take behind the scenes video of it and stuff. And it was just super cool watching them develop that, that, uh, that creature. Um, and then Jason, uh, Kane, who's again, my super special effects supervisor, he and I discussed what I wanted the creature to look like. I, I wanted its face to look like it was someone's head that had been like, it was a skull kind of looking upwards with, without eyeball sockets, basically. Um, and it's supposed to represent what the kid's vision of, you know, the, the terror of the events that happens when they're a shot, when they're children, when the dude hits his, you know, when he slits his throat and falls to his knees and his head falls backwards and, and the neck wound opens up, that's meant to be the mouth of the monster. And then his head kind of cocked backwards, looking up at the ceiling is kind of why the, the creature's head looks like a skull facing upward. Um, and so I kind of instructed Jason of, of what my idea was. And Jason is easily the most talented sculptor and artist that I know. And he and I share a very similar style when it comes to horror and gore. And so he just kind of went with it and started running. And I remember the first time he sent me a picture of the maquette that he had done. Uh, you know, the sculpt was probably about the size of a... Uh, um, I don't know, a little bit bigger than a golf ball, maybe the size mm. of a fist. And I, I shit myself. I was like, <laughs> this, is, this is it, man. This is exactly what I wanted. This is fucking terrifying looking. And when this thing is seven feet tall, standing over the character at the end of the movie, I, I think people are going to freak out. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of, of how well the creature turned out. We had probably about a team of, of, 10 special effects artists on the movie all together and they worked tirelessly on on that film and and i know they probably all hated me while we were shooting because of how exhausted they were but um you know they created some really amazing visuals and i'm, I'm just so proud to be associated with such amazing artists yeah the the final scene with that with the creature standing over her it, i still can picture that whole scene in my head that was very impressive in the and the creature was i i really dug the design of that and then finally getting to see the whole thing was i was like wow that, that thing looked impressive so uh so yeah so you, the rake's out there now and you also have now just recently uh it's online is skeletons in the closet which is kind of your uh, it, it is an anthology film uh set retro style 
Um, and I got a little bit of uh, from Ben of how that kind of came about. Um, with Skeletons in Closet, uh, what was the motivation for uh, making it uh, a retro? Because I liked the fact that it had the retro feel and everything to it, but at the same time, it also didn't quite feel like you were slapping us in the face completely with the retro. Uh, so what was your uh, decision on, on doing that, and, and how do you reach that balance to where you want to be nostalgic, yet you don't necessarily want to push it down people's throats, so to speak? Well, I'm I'm a big fan of the '80s. I mean, anybody who knows me even remotely knows that I'm a, I'm obsessed with that decade. You know, I, I'm 38 years old. I was born in 1980. So, growing up as a kid in the '80s was like was like winning the lottery, as far as I'm concerned. According to my father, the only better decade was the 1950s, post World War II, and um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so. It was it, it was a really awesome experience. The toys, the cartoons, the movies, um, every everything as you know, being a child in the eighties was just amazing. That's like right before you know technology really had its surge of of just craziness to where now people don't even want to be outside anymore. People don't want to communicate to each other in person anymore, and and uh, so it was just great being a part of that. And so I try and instill a degree of that inspiration and influence um, into all of my work. And, and a lot of my stuff as, as a result takes place in the eighties. Um, so <clears throat> I'm sure as Ben told you initially chop shop was an anthology film that we were working on with two other filmmakers from the Midwest. And when that fell apart, when we decided to disband that project, Ben and I each had our short films and, and mine, you know, of course took place in the 1980s because to me, Grandma O'Malley's pantry is the perfect eighties after school special kind of tale. It's very tales from the dark side. Um, you know, told from a girl, a little girl's perspective. And so it was already 1980s, uh, intentionally. And then Ben's story, aside from the modern cars in the junkyard, if you're not really paying attention to the background, his film is kind of timeless. Um, and then, uh, so we had those and we had the wraparound of the, the first person perspective going through the junkyard, you know, kind of purgatory situation. And that was tying the movies together, which initially also connected the other two shorts that were in Chop Shop but they were not as integral of story points as Ben's movie, The Dismantler, and my movie, Grandma Malley's Pantry, um, where the characters were directly involved. Um, so we kind of had those three segments and we're like, we've got 50 minutes of content, what are we gonna do with it? And we'd spent, you know, in the background while we were working on High on the Hog and working on World of Death, which is our web series that we run through bloodydisgusting.com and um and then the the um the rake you know it's like we're doing all these other projects and and chop shop's kind of always been in the background and finally in 2016 we're like we need to finish this movie we either need to release these as shorts or we need to we need to f create wraparound content that that makes it a feature and you know to think that all you have to do is shoot 20 to 25 minutes of content to have a feature length, it's difficult for you to not find that appealing as a producer. Mm -hmm. um, so we had had a couple of different ideas tossed around between Ben and myself and our and our other co-producer, Robert Patrick Stern, um, who was cinematographer on the films and, and our co-producer. 
And ultimately, nobody was kind of jumping the gun on on doing any of these. Nobody was pulling the trigger would be the appropriate phrase. But uh, nobody was pulling the trigger on any of their ideas. And so I said, you know what? I've I've had this idea for for a show in my head called Skeletons in the Closet for since college. So you know, easily a decade, fifteen years now, um, about a horror hostess and and a host um, because you know everybody's got Elvira, everybody's got Svengoolie and and uh, you know the Crypt Keeper, but nobody has ever done kind of a dynamic duo of mm-hmm. host and hostess. And um, I just really enjoyed the idea of a woman who murders her husband and sits and talks to, to his dead body, you know, kind of like Norman Bates with his mother, um, while watching scary movies. So it's like the best of both worlds. You've got your Elvira and you've got your Crypt Keeper and they have the Paganel Bundy dynamic about them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I kind of introduced Ben to that idea and Ben really liked it. He's like, that's really cool. And I started talking to Jason about it and Jason was on board and Jason helped me kind of come up with some of the the finer details with it as we started bullshitting. Um, him and his wife Christina and I sat and spent some time developing the story. And uh, then I, I really liked adding in the idea of having a bystander kind of watching the show on television because my roommate's house is um, my roommate's house is uh, very 1980s decorated still, and so. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to utilize the 1980s family room with the wood paneled walls and, and all that, you know, it's, it's just such a cool location. How do you not take advantage of it? Um, and so I kind of said, okay, well, let's, let's create, you know, the widow's number one fan. And it's just going to be this little girl who's watching the show and, and then, you know, developed the idea from there and my friend Karen's daughter, Lainey, um, I just think is, uh, you know, she's super cute and has a great personality and was an actress. So I, I kind of almost like catered the, the, the concept to her. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I really wanted to get her in the movie and, uh, I think it worked out great. You know, um, we, I pitched it to Rob and, um, you know, eventually convinced him that it would be a good idea to do this. And, um, he just won a best cinematography award for the movie. So he better be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, so it it just ended up being great. Cause you know, it was October of 2016 that I was convincing everybody to do this film. And by March of 2017, we were shooting the skeleton segment. And then in April we shot, uh, what's called, um, killers in the house um which is uh the segment with the little girl and the babysitter and then uh you know we spent the rest of 2017 editing it and and uh just released it i love love the the channel channel the uh channel channel 13 (laughs) yeah i mean channel 13 spi is scotchworthy productions incorporated so that's Mm -hmm. kind of where that comes from um, and then when Ben was, was working on the edit, he incorporated the narration, you know, the narrator, uh, aspect of it. And all of that was temp. And, um, I watched the first edit that involved that. And I was laughing my ass off, you know, Ben's one of those people who's funny, but he doesn't realize he's funny. Right. Um, 
He's just very quick-witted and very intelligent, and and his delivery is always really spot on. And um, and so he he did that narration, and he's like, you know, we're going to get our composer DC to do it because DC's really good at you know coming up with like different voices and stuff. And I was like, dude, you're insane! Like what you've done is fucking hysterical. We're keeping it. Um, and so yeah, so that that's one of the one of people's favorite aspects of the movie, and. You know, we're trying to develop it into a TV series, so we're really hoping to be able to maintain the integrity of that kind of sub uh, sub story throughout. You know that 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 extra line of um, of kind of characterization, even though you don't even know who the the narrator is. It's just you have his voice throughout the film, and it really helps carry the the humor uh, throughout. Yeah. And what else is, uh, you know, it couldn't be more 80s than a young kid uh, watching something they shouldn't because that seems to be a trend with all of us back then. <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and when, when, I, when I was little, I, I, I vividly remember one occurrence where um, I was spending the night at my grandma and grandpa's house. My parents were out for the night on a date or something, and um or, or they might have been out of town for the weekend. And so I was at, at my grandparents' house. My grandma is who I truly um, identify as being the the inspiration for my love of the horror genre. My dad would tell me that when he was a kid in the 1950s, he's the oldest of five kids. And my grandfather is a, you know, he was in the Coast Guard in the, in the the during World War II or just after World War II. And, um, uh, you know, he was a very... Um, reality-based individual and so my grandma <laughs> liked all the monster movies and stuff and my grandpa wasn't interested in going to see them because they weren't real he thought they were stupid so my grandma would bring my dad and and that's where i think that the love of the genre kind of comes from and so i just remember vividly being god i don't even know how old maybe five six years old um laying on the floor in front of my my grandma and grandpa's big old wooden television in their living room watching uh, Tales from the Dark Side with her, um, and she was. It was the episode that Tom Savini directed, um, where this like college co-ed girl rents a room in this house, and there's this little closet door in the room, and at night this Lizzie, this little monster creature, comes out of it and ends up ripping the girl apart. And that that is probably that and the crate from creep show are the two things that uh that i would say if i had to say what inspired me those are the two things that have inspired my entire aesthetic as a filmmaker nice well those are those are really good uh those are really good uh choices too i can see how they would inspire you i can see some of that and some of the the work you've done as well so uh yeah the, the 80s I, i've always talked about how I've watched, I watched movies. I probably shouldn't have my parents let me cause movies were big. And, you know, I remember watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I remember sitting down with my dad and watching Hellraiser while we ate Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, eighties, the they're, they're interesting times. And, uh, like you said, I really like the fact that you had it set in the eighties and, uh, Ellie church, I thought was great as the widow. And, uh, who's that? Uh, Adam Michaels is her, uh, dead husband in there uh you know if you do go to a series do you will those two reprise their roles or will you do you think you may need to recast those roles 
I mean, the the ultimate goal is is to to maintain the integrity of the of the main cast. I, I want to bring back Ellie Adam as well as Lainey. I think Lainey is is a is a wonderfully talented young girl. You know, she's eleven years old now, and um, and, and I I don't understand why anybody would want to recast her. I think she's cute as a button, and she's a good actress. She was able to emote better than some of the adult actors that I've worked with over the years. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you're not going to find it unless you get L fanning or something who at this point is probably 16. I don't even know, you know, you'd have to find a really famous kid and I don't know any other kids that are, you know, there's no Haley Joel Osment's out there right now. <laughs> uh, Chloe Moretz's or whatever. So I, I just think that recasting her would be a, a, a real blunder on a producer's part. Mm-hmm. Um, I can understand if they would want to recast Ellie it, just because, you know, she, she's a, a screen queen on the independent level, but um, I, I don't know how, you know, how you could, how you couldn't bring someone who's, who's a bigger name, broad, broad, you know, right. Wide scale and, and, and put them in that position. But our argument from the start has been, look, you maintain the integrity of the main cast and you do what Tales from the Crypt did. You put the named actors in each of the episodes and each of the short films that they're watching during the episode. And, right. Yeah, and then that way, it, it's also, I think it's also more manageable and less expensive budget-wise because you're bringing in a named actor for a one or two-day shoot as opposed to having to keep a main actor there and not that shooting the wraparound content wouldn't only take one or two days as well because you're shooting, you know, 10 minutes of, a, of two people sitting on a couch talking. Right. But, you know, at the same time, I, I just I'm I'm the type of person that it's like, look, if, if you are there for me, I'm going to go to bat for you. <laughs> if you piss me off or if you fuck me over, you're dead to me. But if you. If you are are someone who who stuck with me, you know, and did it when we weren't when there was no money, then I'm going to try and get you there when there is the money. Sure. And, um, and so I'm going to do everything in my power, and I know that Ben is going to stand by my side in in trying to to keep those three actors on board for the series. Um, and and hopefully the argument of putting named actors in each of the short films is a good enough argument. Again, it worked for Tales from the Crypt, so I don't know why it, it can't work for this as well. You know, um, I think it's a great formula. Plus, it gives you a chance to keep the show fresh as well uh, when you take that format. And yeah, I I, I really hope uh, you can get it to work out because I do like those three main. I mean. Uh, uh, Who's it? Uh, Elena. He said, Lanny, uh, the little girl. She had a bad seed element to her. I, I enjoy the film, The Bad Seed. And she just had that kind of angle to her, to where she she was, you know, uh, very charming. But at the same time, you can tell that, uh, you know, she could be devilishly uh, evil, too, <laughs> if she wanted to be. <laughs> I just I like the way she played. Uh, that character quite a bit and uh, yeah I hope you can keep those uh, cast members together because they all seem to work really well and uh, yeah I, I know it's uh, I know a number of people would be interested if that could become a series because uh, I think you you've got a, a lot of material you could work with there so so hopefully you you, you do get that into a series and um, 
because I know I'd watch it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And hopefully, you know, our, our distributor, Cowlamp Films, uh, mm-hmm. they released the feature um, and they're, they're really working at trying to get this show uh, developed as well and produced. And so I'm, I'm thankful to have, you know, such enthusiasm and, uh, and support from them as we've had at this point. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited about the potential of it all um, working with them and, and you know, cause it, it truly is a partnership. They, they understand our creative ideas and they respect those and they want to help maintain the integrity of, of our core concept. Um, and, and the, the cool thing about the show is it provides the opportunity to bring in other talent. You know, you can have, you can easily have, um, other other filmmakers come on board to direct the either whether it's the whole episode or the short film in each episode you know my ultimately ben and i would like to maintain control over directing the the wraparound content of the two stories with jamie and the widow and charlie but i have no problem allowing other filmmakers to direct the 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 short films within each episode um and obviously we have a lot of associates and friends that we would love to have directed a short film because then it gets their names out there and and allows us to work together on stuff as well as bring in other named actor or directors mm-hmm. um you know we're, we actually have a meeting next week that is with uh, our distributor and a very well-known director and producer duo that are interested in partnering with us and if that goes through um, the well-known director will be directing the pilot episode and, and it is real exciting to think about the, uh, the potential opportunity of this happening. And, um, I've been in this situation before, so I'm trying to mask my elation and optimism as much as possible with the cynicism of reality. Sure. But, but there is, there is a point where you have to be excited that the project at least, um, intrigued these people enough to bring them to the table in the first place. Yeah, it, it sounds very exciting. And uh, I, I do hope that all works out because uh, it, it would be interesting to see where these, where this goes, uh, you know, and what type of stories to be another tales from the crypt. Cause I remember growing up uh, the anthology stories and that, you know, in the anthology series you had, you know, the hitcher you had, um, you know, a tales from the crypt tales from the dark side, uh, and then we had the other ones like monsters, you know, <laughs> and you, you had, uh, just all those, uh, for a while, they brought back outer limits for a while. And I really like those because you do get the chance to see, um, a variety of different shows, but you also, as you mentioned, get to see the talents or get some, uh, filmmakers, some exposure who might not got that chance otherwise. So, yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's kind of where we're at with world of death, you know, our, our web series world of death is um, it, it features short horror films that we've collected from filmmakers around the world. We have over 400 movies and we represent over 40 countries at this point. Um, And it's, it's an episodic show that we release through, through Blade Disgusting's YouTube channel once a week. Um, I think we're actually changing the release approach here in, in the, in the next uh, by the end of the year, I think we'll be actually restructuring our our episodic set setup. We're we're close to hitting episode two hundred, but um, getting back on target here uh, with my point is that um, I am a big proponent of building a community 
and of the camaraderie. My 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 phrase with uh, our slogan, I guess, so to speak, with World of Death is, you know, just one cast and crew group or one filmmaker is is a whisper but all of us together is is a, a battle cry and um you know i am i'm not a, a hater of hollywood but i think that hollywood is is not run by the creatives by any means and i think that hollywood is all about money and which i understand that i, I understand that 100 percent. but it's like there are so many insanely talented filmmakers out there so many amazing artists that are out there that would just fucking beg to have the opportunity to have even a hundred thousand dollars to make a feature <laughs> movie and so all i want to do is foster that talent and and develop it with with other people you know and build relationships because not i mean you know as selfless as that may sound and to a large degree you know i'd say 70 percent of that is a selfless mentality um the 30 percent of selfishness is that it it builds it boosts our promotions you know the more people that know about know that, that we work with know about our stuff and the more people i can get involved with skeletons in the closet if it becomes a show is more people that are going to be out there promoting it you know and mm -hmm. um so I'm 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 just very eager to to get this show underway and hopefully we can find the money to the very least get a pilot episode produced so that we can show distribution avenues, you know, whether it's Showtime or HBO or Shutter or Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, we can show them this and say, look, like the feature length movie might not have been made for any money. You know, the feature length movie was made for the budget of a of of a fucking episode of naked and afraid's you know catering budget <laughs> yeah um so to see what we did with no money over the course of six years with the feature i can only imagine how amazing a pilot episode or a first season would look if we actually had a legitimate budget behind it um helping us get it made so i'm just just asking everybody out there keep your fingers crossed and just put it into the universe, you know, just throw it out there and just be like this skeletons in the closet. is going to be a thing this time next year. You know, we're going to be watching the first episode, you know, or the season's going to be released next Halloween or whatever. So we'll see. So we'll definitely see. And when that does happen, I, I not if, but when that does happen, I would uh, love to circle around and talk with you some more on this. Um, and also, uh, high on the hog uh you mentioned that one uh just touch on that a little bit as well because i saw the trailer for it a while ago and then i hadn't heard anything and then just recently i saw the trailer again i was talking a little bit with ben uh high of the hog is uh that going to come to public consumption at some time yeah i mean i i i know that our, our distributor has it mm -hmm. i don't know if they're handling domestic or foreign or both um, I really don't have any details about high in the hog and it's, ah, okay. you know, it's one of those things where it, we produced it over six years ago. We were on set in September of 2012, mm -hmm. making that movie, um, working with Sid Haig and Robert Zadar and Joe Estevez was a, an amazing experience. Um, 
and and I'm I'm really excited for people to see the movie. You know, I think that Ben did an amazing job with the edit on that film. He and I work together so well um, creatively that it it's just an exciting prospect to to think of what horror fans and Sid Haig fans are going to think of that movie because even though it's not horror, I think that the independent you know marketplace is really going to get a kick out of that movie. Um, you know, the people that I see at these conventions, it's, it's a movie made for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited about that, but, um, I just, I don't have any details on it. Sure. You know, I've heard that it could be released in the next few weeks. I, I would assume no matter what, it's going to be out by spring mm-hmm. of next year. Um, but at this point it's been a significant waiting game. So we'll have to see what happens. Sounds good. Well, I think we'll wrap it up uh for us tonight uh tony i really appreciate you taking the time to uh talk uh with us about your films and and filmmaking and that and now uh this is a chance in the uh show where uh, why don't you tell our fine listeners uh where they can find you at or or where they can keep up to date with uh, your projects like skeletons in the closet and high on the hog and your future stuff as well um well as you said the rake you can rent Pretty much anywhere you can rent or buy it anywhere um if you have cable um just go to your video on demand part of cable and look for the rake uh if you are um you know if you're a member of amazon you it's not on amazon prime i don't think but you can rent it or buy it on amazon itunes uh voodoo um it's it's um, bestbuy.com you can go to walmart and buy the dvd uh, unfortunately it was not released on blu-ray i don't know why but it was not um so you you can only buy the dvd but you can do it there or you can go to my website scotchworthy.com and pick up a copy of the rake if you if you reach out and contact me via email um, along with any of my other products are available in the scotchworthy store uh, at scotchworthy.com um, skeletons in the closet is available on um, amazon as well as itunes and popcorn flicks and fright picks um so you can check it out in any of those places or you can pre-order a blu-ray from my website the blu-rays uh we're we're planning on having them here by november 15th uh we will be at the days of the dead convention in schaumburg illinois uh november 16th to the 18th and i'm very very excited to have the blu-rays at that convention to sell um, I know that Lainey will also be in attendance as well as Adam Michaels, I believe, will be there. So Charlie and Jamie will be in attendance and uh, will be eager to sign autographs and talk to fans. And um, I believe we might even be, we're trying to schedule a screening of Skeletons in the Closet for the convention weekend, um, as well as some potentially World of Death films. Um, as I said, with World of Death, you can go to Blade Disgusting's YouTube channel and check that out. Um, we're, we're nearing episode 200, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, and then again with high in the hog, I don't really know where, where it's going to be available or when it's going to be available, but you know, you, if you haven't seen the trailer already, go to YouTube and just search, just go to Google and search high on the hog movie <laughs> and it'll bring up the X rated trailer and don't watch it at work or around your kids, but <laughs> give it a watch. And, and I think you'll really get a kick out of it and, it's Sid Haig in a role that you're not accustomed to seeing Sid Haig play. So I think that people are really going to enjoy that. And um, uh, I, 
I want people to be excited about it because it's a cool movie. It's a lot of fun and it's bad shit crazy. So, uh, yeah, you know, we're we're around. We're I'm, I'm planning on hitting more of the conventions over the next year as well. Now that we have more merchandise to sell and and more movies to promote, so um, you know, you can find me on Facebook and and on Instagram as well. On Instagram, I'm Scotchworthy, uh, and on Facebook, I'm just Tony Wash. So you can find me and hit me up. You know, I. I like knowing that people enjoy our work. I like talking to people about it. And I like knowing that there's fans out there. That's if it wasn't for all you guys, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you for providing interesting content and giving us a break from the, uh, the, the main Hollywood uh, pulp that we normally get. So I always appreciate that about Andy films. So you are uh, welcome. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tony. And I guess we'll just call it a good night. Sounds good, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Take care.